My name is um, Emma Tomlin. I'm Professor of Religion and Public Life at the University of um, Leeds. And I would like to welcome you all to this panel on public understandings of religion, immigration and politics, North American and European perspectives. This uh, panel has been organised by the AAR's Public Understanding of Religion Committee. Um, now, there's a large and informative scholarly literature on the topic of religion and immigration. And this is also an area of interest to policymakers and the third sector. And in 2012, the Pew Foundation published its landmark study, Faith on the Move, stating that there is a need to understand this better as, to quote, people are on the move and so are their faiths. The total number of international migrants living around the world has grown substantially over the past 50 years, climbing from about 80 million people, or 2.6% of the world's population, to, in 1960 to about 214 million, or roughly 3% of the world's population by 2010. Now, the Public Understanding of Religion Committee collectively felt that it was time to host a panel on religion, immigration and politics in the light of the current political mood in North America and Europe that is generating widespread hostility towards both established and recent immigrants. In Europe, this terrain has been shaped over the past few years by immigration as a result of conflict in Syria and from unstable regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa, fueling tense relations between refugees and host communities within immigrant communities and between EU member states. And in North America, immigration has always been in the political limelight, but from the early days of the Trump campaign, a particularly pernicious and worrying discourse around them and us has dominated debates around race, religion and immigration. Now, key political watersheds since last summer have made this topic ever more important to bring to the AAR. We planned this panel before Brexit and before the election of Trump. And we see in other parts of Europe the reascendancy of a nationalist and right-wing politics that is fueling negativity towards immigration even more. So both Brexit and the Trump result cast the rationale for this panel in a new, more urgent light. Now, the aim of this panel is to explore issues and debates around religion, immigration and politics, as well as to provide some comparative insights on the current situation in Europe, alongside experiences in the USA. So exploring how religion is located within these debates, for instance, as a foundation for appeals to national or civilizational identities that exclude certain groups, as well as a means for overcoming conflict and providing support and advocacy for vulnerable immigrant communities. What are the implications of defining refugees or immigrants in terms of their faith and ethnicity, including the ways in which this can fuel negative stereotypes? How does religion operate in the lives of women and sexual minorities when communities migrate? And how do we make sense of the somewhat ambiguous response of Christian churches in both the USA and Europe in addressing issues around immigration? Now, I'm going to finish my introduction to the uh, panel now and introduce our four, five eminent uh, panellists who have contributed to these debates and others in their work. I'm going to explain how we're going to run the um, session. 
Um, when I've introduced each of the panellists, they're going to speak for around 10 minutes about their work in this area. And then we've agreed upon a, a few questions that I will then pose to them in order to pull out some of the more current issues, debates and concerns around this topic. And then we'll leave you know, half an hour to three quarters of an hour for you to also get involved in the discussion and to pose your questions to the uh, panellists. So our first speaker today is um, Atalia Omar at the end here from the University of Notre Dame. She's Associate Professor of Religion, Conflict and Peace Studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Her research interests that are directly relevant to this panel include the theoretical study of the interrelation between religion and nationalism, the role of national, religious and ethnic diasporas in the dynamics of conflict, transformation and peace, and the symbolic appropriation of the Palestine-Israeli conflict in other zones of conflict. Her second solo-authored book project, titled From Zion to New York, Refiguring American Jewish Ethics and Identity Through Solidarity with Palestinians, explores why divergences in conceptions of national identity between homeland and diasporas could facilitate the proliferation of loci of analysis and foci of peace-building efforts. Our second um, presenter is Daniel Grudy uh, from the University of Notre Dame also. He is a Catholic priest, a scholar, teacher, an award-winning author and film producer. He is currently an Associate Professor of Theology and Director of Immigra Immigration Initiatives at the Institute for Latino Studies. Drawing on years of work in Latin America, particularly along the US-Mexico border, he has authored various books and articles, including Border of Death, Valley of Life, An Immigrant Journey of Heart and Spirit, and Globalization, Spirituality and Justice, Navigating the Path to Peace. He has worked with the US Congress, the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, the World Council of Churches, and the Vatican on issues of theology, globalization, and migration. Our third speaker is Jocelyn Cesare, um, from the, from, uh, who holds the Chair of Religion and Politics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. She is also a Senior Fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Centre on Religion, Peace and World Affairs. She teaches on contemporary Islam at the Harvard Divinity School and directs the Harvard interfaculty programme Islam in the West. Her most recent books are The Islamic Awakening, Religion, Democracy and Modernity and Why the West Fears Islam, an exploration of Islam in Western liberal democracies. Her book, When Islam and Democracy Meet, Muslims in Europe and the United States, is a reference in the study of European Islam and integration of Muslim minorities in secular democracies. Our fourth presenter is uh, Erin Wilson from the University of Groningen. She's the director of the Center for Religion, Conflict and the Public Domain and a senior lecturer in um, religion and politics, the Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies. Her research is positioned at the intersection of religious studies and international relations, with particular interest in the impact of secular worldviews in areas of global justice, human rights, forced migration, development and gender, and the development of alternative theoretical frames beyond religious and secular. Her books include After Secularism, Rethinking Religion in Global Politics, and Justice Globalism, Ideology, Crisis, Policy. And last but not least, our fifth uh, presenter 
is Dr. Victor Kamana from the Oblate School of Theology, where he's a professor of moral theology here in San Antonio. He earned his doctorate at the University of Notre Dame, and before becoming a moral theologian, Victor served migrants and urban communities with the Mexican Catholic Conference of Bishops and the missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, and those experiences continue to shape his thinking and teaching. Victor authored Theologizing Immigration in Blackwell's Companion to Latino Theology, and has also published in the Journal of Catholic Hispanic Theologians of the United States. Okay, so I'd just like to give a warm welcome to all our presenters and to um, invite Italia to come up and give the first presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Emma, for this great introduction and also for setting, setting it up uh, conceptually. And thank you for all of you here, survivors of the Sunday night parties. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, um, I am convinced that we'll have a very productive and substantial conversation. So um, the framing of the panel as one focusing on identifying how and where religion is located in debates on immigration and politics offers an entry point, uh, as Emma already alluded to, uh, into deciphering how religion relates to the pop populist nationalist tide that has swept Europe and now the United States. In my brief remarks, I would like to address three points, nationalism and religion, religion and the politics of multicultural diversity, and intersectional analysis and solidarity spaces as sites of critique and co-resistance but also as sites of discursive reframing of political and national boundaries. Underlying my remarks is recognition that discourses on immigration are deeply linked to the operative interpretations and practices of nationalism. So uh, first, the question about how religion intersects with debates on um, immigration is only partially addressed if it only generates discussions as to how explicitly religious actors and institutions respond to the crisis of refugees through exerting pressures on policymakers and in terms of the levels of their participation in resettlement efforts and providing um, uh, uh, spiritual services and other kind of services. The issue is only partially addressed if it only focuses on what religious actors say and do when confronted by anti-immigrant rhetoric or by rendering third and fourth generation non-Christian citizens as somewhat located outside what are the supposed real boundaries of the community. Examining religion with respect to questions of immigration requires that we will scrutinize what Max Weber referred to as the elective affinities of religion, ethnicity, and nationalism. In other words, it is critical to analyze how religion relates to the production and reproduction and redrawing of national and political boundaries for inclusion and exclusion. Nationalism or national imagination that threads diverse identities in context of deep plurality were not attended to. In an era of intoxication with globalism, post-nationalism, uh, when post-nationalism post became a currency and so caught many by surprise when all of sudden populist identities are articulated. Christianity and specifically white Christianity, racialized religion, 
is now amplified in articulating a narrative about national authenticity that harken back to a nostalgia of a supposed golden age of white supremacy on the backs of, of course, indigenous populations, African slaves, and with gender dimensions permeating all the way through. The birther movement, championed by the elected billionaire, uh, speaks to the rhetorical underpinnings of narrow narrowing the scope of membership along racial and religious lines. It also points to the deep roots the current moment has in American history. The cult of, of authenticity is pivotal for chauvinistic violent articulations of national discourses. While Christianity is central here, um, it will be, uh, uh, and, and it is, it will be mistaken to only look for its traces in explicitly religious leaders, churches, uh, and so forth. They constitute important mechanisms, but Christianity here intersects in constructing the threshold of inclusion and exclusion for membership in the political community. And this is where I think it's very effective and useful to, um, uh, uh, to look at the kind of insights that Max Weber articulated in his thesis of the, about the elective affinities of religion, nationalism, and ethnicity as they play out, and there is no resting place um, in how they play, um, how these elective affinities plays out. The xenophobia and Islamophobia that shape the debates about immigration also threatens non-white, non-heterosexual citizens. And offers, uh, but, but it also offers insights into why debates about immigration and the question, uh, the question pertaining to the human security and dignity of the immigrant and refugee, why it intersects with the real and potential threats to other non-white, non-Christian communities whose citizenships is rendered um, inauthentic. Again, going back to the issue of the cult of authenticity and how it plays out in populist articulation of national identity. The elections and the unfolding of the new administration's cabinet shows that the conception or construction of the public as Judeo-Christian is and or could be punctured, punctured and it's not uh, self-evident or um, um, an unchallenged social fact illuminating its, its constructed nature that, on the one hand, relied on Orientalist underpinnings that had already excluded Muslim bodies and authentic, as authentic citizens, nationals, even when they commit the most profound, prof, uh, profound of sacrifices. And on the other, on the construction of Jews as white. So there, there has been a lot of uh, um, a very um, important discourse that constructed Jews as white, but now Jews are not exactly white in the contemporary um, um, populist moment. Uh, with anti-Semitism now in the open, one can identify it as the flip side of Islamophobia, and both hatreds through mimetic mechanisms of scapegoating also rendering many different kinds of groups as outside the normative citizenship discourse, and therefore deeply highlight what debates about anti-immigration rhetoric signify when one employs an intersectional lens explaining the conceptual and political connections among various sites of target of populist uh, racialized white nationalism. Likewise, as other um, speakers on the issue of the elections said in the past few days here in the AAR uh, in different panels, one needs to be very cautious not to fall into culturalist explanations because the immigrants and refugees at our doors did not emerge out of nowhere, but rather their homelessness is often an outcome of US complicity and geopolitics. 
One needs, and other Western European um, nation states, one needs to examine how cultural discourses, including Orientalist, or Orientalism, participated in and authorized their displacement, and what are the kind of responsibilities then that are owed to uh, those populations. Uh, this discursive analysis is necessary in order to identify and comprehend the cult of authenticity and how it operates in intersecting ways against vulnerable and potentially, uh, and potentially vulnerable populations, both abroad and at home. After highlighting racialized religion and the cult of authenticity central to, the sh to chauvinistic interpretation of nationalism that operates in accordance with uh, kind of a sliding exclusionary logic, where even fourth generation Muslim or Sikh um, will be considered alien, I now turn to the second point about the discourse of multicultural citizenship that had appeared to be operative and even functioned as one pivot in the democratic uh, platform. The discourse of multiculturalism that only foregrounded recognition of diverse identity, identities but led the discourse of recognition as the path for political justice to gloss over the discourse of equality and redistribution is now exposed. It was Nancy, political philosopher Nancy Fraser's challenge to liberal threads of the multicultural discourse of citizenship that comes to mind. Fraser mediated debates about multiculturalism. On the one hand, crit critics of multiculturalism and the politics of identity worried about whether socioeconomic equality and redistributive policies will be sacrificed on the altar of recognition that will lead to ghettoization of groups as well as enable various self-appointed spokespersons to reinforce internal forms of structural and cultural violence, also along gender lines. On the other, classical liberal critiques of the politics of identity and recognition was accused of ignoring the relation between power and the construction of normative citizenship as supposedly universal and neutral, but really provincial and ethnoculturally specific. Frazier attempted to mediate economic and social justice discourse and the justice discourse of recognition. It is important to reckon with this effort now, now when commentators such as Mark um, Lila, uh, just recently in the past few days, declares the politics of recognition as having failed. It failed only because it neglected cultivating the common space of citizenship. The question, what does it mean after all to be Americans uh, 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 what it means to be Americans in this particular ca uh, case. It fell because it overwhelmed the focus on redistrib redistributive justice. Um, this analysis gestures to the need to, to renegotiate the political space of citizenship and ask, what does it mean to inhabit it? What narratives bind us together? Uh, Tariq Madud likewise recognizes this in urging the cosmopolitan discourse of citizenship to avoid neglecting the cultivation of binding national imagination while cultivating distinct particularistic mechanisms for deep pluralism. This leads me to the third point uh, which I wanted to introduce today. This is about the sites of resistance and solidarity and how religion and religious actors participate there, therein. The sanctuary movement to ensure that university campuses in the US are going to remain safe for undocumented persons and individuals who have benefited um, from, um, uh, from deferred action on their um, um, legal status of citizenship is a clear case in point with deep historical roots in religious action. In today's climate, participation in the sanctuary movement is a rather self-evident entry point for religious actors and leaders who will be conflicted and hesitant to defend other marginalized and targeted groups, partially because of how religious actors play into the fields of the so-called cultural wars. 
However, the analysis I highlighted above suggests the intricate intersection of sites of marginalization and therefore gestures toward the possibility of broadening necessarily the resistance and prophetic critique of a system that by way of underscoring white racialized Christianity threatens many groups of people. The politics of recognition without redistribution led to the ascendancy of populism that is unlike, unlikely to redress socioeconomic inequalities. It is important to recognize um, where the sites of resistance are and how religious actors participate in those sites beyond underscoring the issue of un undocumented um, and deferred action um, um, young people as an easy entry point to the inter intersecting possibilities of threats and assaults of many groups of people. Since the elections, we were confronted uh, with an unprecedented number of hate crimes aimed at religious and cultural, and cultural communities. But we have also seen a growing number of interreligious and other communal expressions of solidarity. In the city of Chicago, where I conduct some research with local Jewish actors, a campaign that actually pre-existed the outcomes of the elections, a campaign of canvassing local businesses, urging them to stand against Islamophobia, to put signs on their windows saying we are not going to profile Muslims and we, 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 we reject it, um, um, uh, 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 is really in full force right now in Chicago. In an interface rally before canvassing on the Saturday immediately after the elections, speakers drew speakers from diverse religious communities, uh, Christians, Muslims, and also other uh, community um, um, uh, community organizers. Uh, the speakers drew clear and explicit connections between threads of religious tests to refugees and immigrants, and the transformation of many citizens onto inauthentic and non-normative citizens. These are intersecting threats, expanding to include potential assaults on women rights, um, uh, women bodies, and the rights and gains of the LGBTQI communities. Uh, it is heartening to observe all those local sites of resistance echoed also in true level of, um, of leadership when, um, uh, when CEO of ADL publicly declares that when the time for Muslim registry comes, he will register as a Muslim too. However, beyond the sites of resistance and solidarity, the task is also to cultivate a counter-citizenship discourse that moves beyond the limits of the unreconstructed liberal discourse of multicultural citizenship. The national imagination that binds various individuals and groups together need to be negotiated in sociocultural and substantive ways because the, politico the political is not an empty procedural space. So to conclude, I argue that the debate surrounding assaults on immigration foreground issues pertaining to the rise of populism and the plights of many intersecting communities threatened by racialized conceptions of identity and religion and nationalism. Hence, the, 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 um, to imagine how religious actors participate in such debates, one needs to broaden that scope of participation to the very renegotiation through sites of resistance to populism of the boundaries of national imagination. And I'll stop here. Thank you. Okay, so I'm now going to um, introduce Daniel Rudy, who will be our next presenter. On, uh, on June 27th, 2000, <clears throat> uh, President Bill Clinton uh, had a press conference on the White, uh, the White House lawn, and he invited two prominent scientists. One was Francis Collins, and the other was Craig Ventner. And they uh, were making a historic announcement 
and it was that they had really been, been able to map out for the first time the, the human genome. And it was a significant discovery, and Bill Clinton said this was a map like no other in human history. And if just to give some sense of scale, if we were to put the, the human genome into 12-point font and put it in a stack of paper as high as the Washington Monument, uh, that uh, gives some sense of, of the magnitude of what this uh, map looks like. But there are many uh, amazing ramifications from this discovery, but one of them has direct implications on migration. Uh, this is a, an exercise that you can do as well, but uh, by looking at certain codes on that genetic strand and comparing them with indigenous tribes, you can actually take just a, a swab from the inside of your ma uh, mouth and uh, send it to the labs and trace back your migration heritage at 80,000 years. So this actually is a map of my family's genetic heritage and journey um, throughout the last 80,000 years. And so it's fascinating to see how today uh, we are discovering that migration is literally in our genes. Uh, as much as these political controversies are garnering a lot of attention, this is just a blip on the historical radar. Uh, it's something that's been happening from the beginning of time. It's something that's uh, going to continue to happen, uh, although, although it's happening today on an unprecedented scale. But the focus, uh, really, of our panel today is to look at its connection to religion. And uh, what is also striking is that migration is not only in our, our physical, biological DNA, it's actually in our spiritual DNA. And as we look at the major monotheistic religions, uh, we can see that really the narrative of the call of Abraham begins on note of migration. Leave your country, um, go to the land that I will show you, and you will be a blessing. So we see that Abraham uh, really began that journey in the land of Ur, and if you look at these contemporary boundaries here today, he would have uh, really gone up the Tigris and Euphrates River, arced up into what is now southern Turkey, and then come back down into Lebanon, Palestine, uh, into Egypt, and back again. So it's really amazing to see how uh, this, this is also the, really the epicenter, really the global refugee crisis today as well. But this kind of issue, which is so uh, current, uh, but it's also something that's uh, so ancient uh, is something that cuts through all kinds of um, issues facing us today, not the least of which is our politics. Uh, to this is an issue that I look at as a theologian. And, um, you know, in looking at this over the years, it's striking that you often hear social scientists looking at this issue, historians and others. But often theologians, when you talk about theology and theology of migration, people look at you like, well, you know, what does theology have to do with migration? Um, I would say everything. And, um, but I want to just kind of talk a little bit today uh, in the short time that I have is something about um, the context uh, and the approach in doing this topic and uh, look at some of the central questions we're using as we look at this issue and then finally to look at some concrete topics that uh, we're, we're doing for research. So um, the first is just um, trying to look at um, this question, how do we think about migration from a theological perspective? I would argue that there's really three approaches. Um, the first really is to, uh, most obvious, is look at the pastoral level. So how do those who are churches or communities of faith or even others of goodwill uh, look at the, the immediate needs of migrants through physical needs, uh, legislative advocacy, or other support? And so it's often those who have helping those who are on the move and those who are vulnerable. Mostly that's how we think about it. Mostly when we think about how the church even talks about it, these are the levels that we think about. And it's an important level of understanding migration and theology and its connections, but it's only a level. The second is really, if the first level goes like this, the second level is really much more of trying to look at the inner journey of migrants. So a lot of my work has been going to borders at different parts of the world and to try to look at the inner spiritual journey. What's going on in the inside? Uh, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What would they say if they were here today? 
Um, what's the journey like, um, as if you will, as they uh, cross borders and as they have their own uh, walk with God? So that's uh, more particularly the spiritual level. Um, the theological level is how do we think about migration as a way of conceiving human identity and a way of understanding what it means to be human before God. So these are interrelated, they overlap, but all of these are really, uh, technically speaking, what this means in terms of a theology of migration. Um, it's all the more important today because, um, as was mentioned early on, there are close to 200, right now the number is up to uh, close to 240 million people who are international migrants. There are 65 million refugees. Uh, if you put internal migrants into that picture, not all of which are vulnerable, but we have close to a billion people who are migrating today. So that's why some people call our own times the age of migration. Um, but it's a lot of people on the move, and it's also a lot of vulnerable people. And these numbers are only going to spike even higher. They could go as high as 400 to 450 million people as we look at the effects of climate change and the displacement and movements of peoples. Uh, just to give some sense of how rapidly this is changing, right now, if refugees were settled in one particular place, they would be the 21st largest company, uh, country in the world. And they are growing at a rate of 38,000 a day or 24 people a minute. These are some of the more um, kind of commonly traveled migration routes um, coming out of Latin America through Central America, coming out of Africa, going out of off to the North African coast, coming through different parts of Asia. And we know kind of whether it's economic reasons or whether it's through fleeing human rights violations, collapse of governments, um, a weak and unstable kind of legal systems. Uh, there are many reasons why people are on the move. And the natural laws are really at work here. If, if really capital, which is mostly concentrated in the Northern Hemisphere, it does not move to where people are, people will move to where the capital is. And that's um, just sort of the laws of nature and the economy. But um, what I want to look at um, within these contexts uh, and vulnerable populations, uh, one of the things that we're trying to look at is to say what's at the core of this theologically. Um, first, I'd like to say that one of the things you're trying to look at is the question of hope. Uh, and that is, in speaking with migrants and refugees at different borders, one of the questions is, is where do people find hope in the midst of some of the world's most hopeless situations? Secondly, is a question of faith. Uh, that is, how do these folks begin to believe in God amidst some of the most unbelievable circumstances? And the third is really a question of love. And it really is, how do they begin to image God in the midst of what seems, uh, at least from the outside, some of the most godless of situations? So these are, these are situations, I'll, I'll kind of outline a little bit in a moment just where these places are, but uh, to just put the spotlight on one place, um, since this is a comparative panel between Europe and really Latin America and the United States, uh, one of these is obviously the epicenter of a lot of this today is going on in the Mediterranean, uh, and particularly Lampedusa. So Lampedusa is particularly interesting because it's often looked at as the door of Europe. So this is off the southern boot of Mexico. This is an island. It's only eight square miles in area. Um, but interestingly enough, it's the first place that Pope Francis chose to visit after he was elected pope. So we might ask, why would the pope choose to go to such a seemingly insignificant place in the middle of nowhere um, to begin, if you will, his journey outside of the Vatican? Um, uh, if you take a look at this boat here, it's very important here on the right because this was one boat that shipwrecked on the island in 2013. And it has a very important significance here because uh, sometime later, uh, one carpenter who lived on the island as he was preparing for the Pope's visit um, decided to actually um, take one of the shipwrecked vessels and the one you just saw 
And he uh, carved out from the driftwood uh, of that shipwreck um, a chalice, which later uh, was used by the Pope at the liturgy that he celebrated uh, in Lampedusa. And so you can see here him presiding at the Eucharist, he actually had only eight days' notice to, um, before he actually uh, came to the island. And the reason why he came was he was reading a story about a series of refugees who were coming across the Mediterranean. Uh, their boat capsized, and there were a few survivors, um, but they clung on to a fishing net. And when the fishermen who were in charge of those fishing nets saw the people clinging to their nets, they actually severed the cords of the nets and they dispatched them to their deaths. So the Pope was so moved by this that he actually came to the island and what he did is he, he wanted to pray for them and pray for many others who are dying. And right now over 4,000 have died this year alone. Those are known deaths. Um, but he, uh, he began to speak about the globalization of indifference. Um, his crozier was uh, made in the form of a ship's wave that actually had bread loaves kind of etched into the side of it. Um, the pulpit that he used um, actually was made out of the rudders of refugee boats. And the uh, chalice that he used um, was made out of that boat that I just showed you earlier that was shipwrecked on the side of the island. Um, it's very interesting. He took out this nail from um, the, the chalice as he was crafting the stem, and then when he put it back in, uh, it made the form of a cross. So uh, this is a deeply rich sort of a symbol. And um, my argument is that uh, one of the things that's important is to see um, that the, the incarnation, one of the ways of seeing the incarnation is really about the divine migration of God to our sinful and broken territory. Uh, the Eucharist is all about kind of uh, being nourished to the re for the return migration back to our homeland. Uh, so the Eucharist is really a place, a meeting place of the divine and human migration. And it's here that the transformation happens. So this Lampedusa and the Eucharist is kind of one very, very rich theme. Uh, and uh, here is Pope using this chalice here at the liturgy um, in Lampedusa. But there is a, um, some refer to the Mexican-American border as an American Lampedusa. And so each year, uh, one, of the, one of the main subjects in my research right now is this connection between migration and Eucharist. But you can see Bishop Kakanis, who's the Bishop of Tucson, Arizona, giving communion um, across the border um, into Mexico. And so each year at this time of year, um, the bishops from both sides uh, organize a, a binational liturgy so that the people from Mexico and people from the United States come together and have one Eucharist and they join the altar together at the fence. So they have one Eucharist in the midst of what is a, divine, a, a, a divided political reality. And so one of the questions is, is not just how can the church and theologians and people like us uh, give more information about more great migration, but how can it uh, craft a new imagination and a new vision of what it means to be human before God, articulate that, but also what this issue is about. And so we put it in these binaries, as Talia said, uh, between us and them and these nationalistic identities. But really what I think that uh, the theologians can bring to this for is to say, look, this is actually um, about all of us. And if we are all, in fact, migrants traveling through this world, moving towards our homeland, um, that in some sense we are accompanying each other on this, on this journey. And so it's a chance and an opportunity to build bridges and not just walls. So there's more to say on this, but I just want to um, briefly kind of name a couple of the projects that we're, that we're working on, one of which is, uh, is one in Rwanda. Yeah, we're working on uh, one that was really a couple from uh, Hotel Rwanda asked, how can, we, how can uh, they begin to uh, talk about God from the context of genocide? They were survivors of Hotel Rwanda, and they were actually uh, wanted us to walk with them on that. So perhaps we can get a little bit more into that um, later. Um, secondly is the question of Syria and the Middle East. Uh, another project we have is working at the Syrian border and trying to figure out how do you heal the inner world of children, especially if they have uh, undergone violence and trauma. 
Thirdly, um, we, we've been working on a project um, in, in Central America that's also looking at DNA. Some of the folks that die in the desert don't have any identification with them. So we're uh, working with forensic anthropologists to identify the DNA in the folks that they find for relatives who are trying to connect with their lost loved ones uh, to bring dignity and also bring closure to some of the people who've died. Fourthly, um, we're looking at the issue of trafficking, um, trying to work um, with law enforcement, also trying to look at kind of stories of trafficking um, and to try to look at um, ways in which um, the church, theology, and the human community can also um, work at healing some of the kind of drastic wounds that we know are coming from this issue. Um, lastly, finally, I just simply say that one issue that um, we're trying to do is to really start um, a program uh, at Notre Dame that's really looking at um, more specifically studies in trafficking, refugees, and migration, which is what STREAM is an acronym for. Um, so we have a new Keogh school coming online. Um, we're having a focal point that's looking at global affairs. We're trying to include theology and spirituality in the formulation of that school. Um, but we're also trying to see what kind of concrete research projects we can come into uh, really bring out um, our deeper identities, which theology can help articulate, but also kind of try to craft um, sort of research projects that help bring out the, the human face of migrants. Um, and, he, and indeed, the religious and, and spiritual, and, and in my case, the Christian theology, the face of Christ um, and people who are vulnerable and on the move today. So thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I would like to address the topic of this panel through my uh, own research as a political scientist who was trained in religious studies in France, which make me undecipherable to a North Atlantic American audience, but I will try. So two angles to look at what's public understanding of religion through my own research have been about secularism and the status of religion vis-a-vis -vis political ideas, powers, and institution. But first about secularism. Uh, nobody agrees on what is secularism, and I'm not going to try to give you a definition at any level. But what is clear is that in the community, the scholarly community looking today at the crisis of secularism, the three points are coming all the time. Separation of state and religious institution, privatization of religion in social life, and decline of personal religiosity. It doesn't matter that these three aspects have been more or less in crisis everywhere. And the scholarly community is very much still, you know, trying to rescue the secularization paradigm that never really worked anywhere except in Western Europe. Um, what strikes me, having and still working in Europe and being in the US, is that to see how much of this myth, you know, the myth as a original foundational story is still very much present in the mind and perception of policymakers and public intellectual when it comes to the religion, not only of immigrants, actually, but of all kinds of citizens and how it is expected from the believer citizen to remove not only the ideas, but the kind of behavior, posture, lifestyle 
that would otherwise spill into the social space or uh, social interactions. And uh, in this regard, the Muslims are considered as the complete other of the enlightened uh, rational citizen believer. Uh, it, it comes from immigration, but not only. I mean, there are long story here that I don't want to completely unfold. But it is clear that this idea of the people who are challenging this what's called neutral space, and we can discuss what neutral means here in sense of actually getting rid of as much as possible of the visibility of religious signs in public life. Um, Islam is seen as a deal breaker, or Muslim is seen as a deal breaker, as you can you know, witness in the distance with the discussion on um, dress codes everywhere, um, on uh, um, niqab, face, cover face covering, and now the burkini uh, that was so present in the debate in France over the summer. But I would say that besides the extreme position of the French on this uh, topic, we can see everywhere that the civilized citizen is expected all over Europe to remove the social dimension of its really or, or religion. And this is interesting because usually political scientists don't pay attention very much at the social dimension. You look at most of the theory, it's all about the state and religious organization relations with the assumption that the more separation or the greater neutrality, the less presence in the social life you have, which is sociologically, historically wrong. Again, take the two countries that I know the best, France and the US, you know. Legally, institutionally, you can say also, you can argue about the French, that they are separating religion. Does it tell you anything about the debate on religion in the two countries? Certainly not. And in some ways, the debate even of, on Islam is very interesting to me. There is a rising in Islamophobia. Religion is seen in the US as uh, Islamic religion as an alienated ideology, which is also a discourse you will find in Europe. What, what, what is very uh, triggering of anxiety in Europe is the way that Muslims are presenting themselves as citizens and believers without trying to be you know, believer like the, some Europe would say, in Europe would say, the mosque or the home. You cannot be a believer only in the mosque and the home. And this is something that is undecipherable to most of Europeans. What, why Americans can understand that. We have even some colleagues that have made the trade to try to explain to, to the American why the French hate the headscarf, you know. So this is ingrained in the, um, I would say habitus, uh, national disposition vis-a-vis -vis secularism, and what is sudden, sad, saddening a lot is first that Europe is moving toward this extreme, which is the French way. If you look at the European Court of Human Rights, most of the decisions are going in this direction, being less and less tolerant of visibility of religious sign. And that it is also common culture of, of policy makers across European countries. And our work as scholars have been very little influential in that. 
very little. So there are lots of things we can we can also ask ourselves. And uh, even if you try, it's very hard to go against this mindset. Um, the, the, the other aspect is that we see the state as a secular bastion, you know. If you live in a secular democracy, the state doesn't influence on religion. Again, we have tons of data that shows that in the last 10 years, the European democracy have increased by 10. They're mingling into the affairs of religious groups, all of them. Try to explain this to my colleagues in political science that still present secular democracy as a place of neutrality between state and religion. So we have work to do here also on the side of how we channel the work of sociology, anthropology of religion, history of religion into the models and patterns of understanding that are not only dominant in the discipline of political science, after all, you can tell me it doesn't matter, but in the policy making, and that's where we are not enough present in this kind of debate. The second point I want to make, if I still have time, is about religion. And here, uh, again, from my own work, what is clear is when I have looked at religion, again, I'm not going to do any definition of religion here. Don't, <laughs> don't think uh, that that's my point. Uh, what I see is when religion appears in politics, the tendency is to look at the texts. What does the Sheikh uh, Lambda has said, and what does his cleric have said, and how can we trace the genealogy of ideas? Yeah, but the tradition sometimes doesn't help. And here I have to bring my own work, because what I have looked into when I've looked at the politicization of Islam in different contexts, it's not the idea. Muslims do not talk so much about belief. They do not discuss so much about belief. It's about to, who, to what do I belong? Is it the nation? Is it the Uma? Is it another kind of community? And that's why you see the, the intersection and confrontation with the nation, with the state. And what do I do? How do I be, behave as a believer? And that's why you see the intersection with behaving as a citizen. And that's why the public space is a major site of contestation. And um, we did an experiment with one of my colleagues. We looked at all the data about uh, state-religion uh, relations and what I call hegemonic religion, which is an absorption of, of, the, of religion, not only by state institution, but as a cement of national identity, as a country that are the, the less democratic. So it includes lots of Muslim countries, but it also includes Sri Lanka, for example. And if you look only at the tradition, you're not going to get that. You have to look at the way that the tradition has been reshaped and re ordered to fit into the national culture. And this is where also, I would say, um, pol political scientists need work on history, on, on changes of ideas, but again, not taking ideas out of their context. And this is something I have lots of discussion with, also with my colleagues of religion. Uh, because once you decontextualize the ideas, you can look at them in different ways and you, you enter a very exciting, exhilarating state where the scholar has a nice take on the ideas, but sometimes it doesn't reflect any of the takes that the people, including some clerics, will have on the ground. And uh, this is another uh, kind of challenge. 
Um, also, if I look back at what is at stake in in the today discussion of religion and immigration, besides the intersection on belonging and behaving, it's clearly uh, um, a discussion on where do I put my loyalty. And this is something that is very central for young people. Is it my loyalty to myself? And it means that all religious prescription will be regulated by my will and my choice. And lots of believers do not do, not do this decision anymore. So lots of them, including in Western democracy, will bring the uh, pressure of the group, of the tradition, of the survival. I have had lots of discussion, for example, on how you marry, who you marry. These are very private discussions that some people in different religious traditions will connect with religious prescription. This is something that is very difficult to understand for lots of generations that have been raised in the disconnection between my will and my religious choice. And interestingly, having done a lot of work on Muslim countries, this is a, a question that is also there. And actually, when we talk about the role of Islam in public space, it says exactly at this intersection between the private choice, the public behavior, and the survival of the religious community, which unfortunately, in some of Muslim countries, is also seen as a political community. I'll stop here. Thank you. Oh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, thanks very much for being here, and special thanks to Emma for pulling all of us together and putting together this great panel. Um, it's a real honour to be on a panel with some great speakers. Um, I realised as I was sitting there that I'd updated the rest of the presentation except the title slide, so apologies for that. Clearly, um, we're not at Rice University, and it's not the 18th of November. Um, any, what I want to do today, uh, my remarks are taken from the introduction to uh, a new edited volume that's coming out in a couple of weeks' time, um, The Refugee Crisis and Religion. Um, there's, there's, I've got some flyers here if you would like to get to buy a copy for a discount. If you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear, then feel free not to. Um, I'm actually going to skip... This is kind of annoying. Okay, I think I think we're right now. Um, I am actually going to skip the first couple of slides because oh. <laughs> ah, there we go. Okay, because um, Dan has already very helpfully gone through some of the stats. I wanted to start out. I think it's it's useful to remind ourselves of the situation that we're in, but Dan's already done that very helpfully. The one thing I did want to stress on that. These figures from the UNHCR's Global Trends Report, they're from the end of 2015. So we've had nearly 12 months go by. These will have gone up. Um, even on the UNHCR's website today, they're reporting that 40,000 people have fled the city of Mosul since the beginning of November. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about. 
And it's this this size and the speed that Dan also referred to that is leading people to talk about the present moment as a crisis. Um, and I'm going to talk. My my remarks are mostly focused on on forced migration and the refugee crisis as such. Um, the other thing that I think is worth us remembering is that 51% of the current global displaced population are children under 18 years of age, and that 86% of the global population displaced population are hosted in developing countries. And yet, despite despite the enormity of this situation, responses from developed countries have been inadequate, to say the least. Um, you may be able to tell from my accent that I'm an Australian by birth. My country of origin has become globally infamous for having arguably the harshest of immigration policies towards asylum seekers and refugees who seek to enter Australia by boat. The deterrence-driven Australian model, whilst condemned by the UNHCR and numerous human rights organisations, has been identified by policymakers in the European context as a possible model for responding to the mass movement of displaced people into Europe. Despite priding itself on its commitment to humanitarianism and human rights, with few exceptions, the European response to the refugee crisis has been to implement increasingly hardline migration policies and deploy harsh exclusionary rhetoric, leading many commentators to suggest that this should not be called a refugee crisis or a displacement crisis at all, but rather should be considered a leadership crisis or a crisis of solidarity. Arguably, the principal catalyst for these increasingly harsh immigration policies and discourses in the question of, is the question of religion, and in particular Islam. Religion has become the primary characteristic by which refugees are conceptualised, resulting in a number of false assumptions. Firstly, that because a majority of refugees are from countries where Islam is the dominant religion, they must therefore be Muslim, of course. Secondly, that there is only one way to be Muslim. If everyone is Muslim, then they are all Muslim in the same way, which is to be violent and reactionary. As we've already heard from Jocelyn, this is clearly not the case, but this is one of the underlying assumptions that's driving the current discourses. The third assumption, the concurrent rise of mass displacement and violent extremism, which is erroneously associated predominantly with Islam, has resulted in a complicated entanglement where the, the categories of refugee, Muslim and terrorist become increasingly entangled in public discourse. This entanglement is contributing to the assumption that all refugees are potential terrorists and the subsequent production of narrow policy responses, exclusionary politics and the solidification of security rather than humanitarianism or solidarity as the framework through which we address forced migration. The situation is further exacerbated by the overlapping of three what I will term good-bad narratives good religion, bad religion, good Muslim, bad Muslim, and good refugee, bad refugee. The good religion, bad religion narrative argues that, contrary to the secularisation thesis, which Jocelyn's just been talking about, that rather than religion disappearing, it's become increasingly more prominent, both as a source of peace and tolerance and as a source of violence and terrorism. The issue now is to facilitate contributions from religion that support peace, human rights and so on, while minimising those aspects of religion that contribute to violence, intolerance and chaos. In the context of the refugee crisis, this narrative manifests in the form of religion identified as a source of persecution that causes people to flee, this is bad religion, as well as a source of support for refugees and forced migrants, both in terms of their personal spiritual journey, as well as in the form of faith-based organisations that provide practical support for refugees. Good religion. 
Now, this isn't to say that such dynamics don't exist or are not important, but they're not the full story. To simply understand religion in terms of either good or bad maintains religion's subordination to the secular in contemporary public discourses. There is a great need in discussions on the refugee crisis to broaden understandings of what religion is, noting its infinite variation across different contexts, to explore the politics that sit behind how religion is defined and used in relation to the contemporary refugee crisis, and to recognise that the categories of religion and secular as well as categories of refugee, asylum seeker, forced migrant, and so on, do not necessarily resonate with the views and experiences of many of the people who are most directly affected by the crisis. The good Muslim, bad Muslim narrative is the, next, is the second that overlaps with the good religion, bad religion narrative in relation to the refugee crisis. Mahmoud Mamdani discussed this narrative in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. The dominant political discourse that emerged did not just emphasise the connection between Islam and terrorism, but also urged us to distinguish good Muslims from bad Muslims. Good Muslims are peaceful, law-abiding and abhor acts of violence that threaten the authority of the secular Western state. Bad Muslims commit acts of violence and, according to political leaders like George W. Bush and Tony Blair, blaspheme the name of Allah and do not adhere to the proper teachings of the Quran. I'd very much like to know when Mr. Blair and Mr. Bush received their theological training in Islamic exegesis so that they can give us this very authoritative statement on what the proper teachings of the Quran are. Now, while these statements could be cast as an attempt to de-essentialise Islam by emphasising that violence is not an endemic feature but only the product of some bad Muslims, this good Muslim, bad Muslim narrative has contributed to constructing good Muslims as devoid of agency victims of a growing radicalised and politicised view of Islam that they are unable to resist. It produces the stereotype of Muslims in particular and religion in general as unable to shake off the chains of an oppressive, conservative, pre-modern culture. The construction of Muslims as agencyless victims of their own tradition whose only hopes rest on external salvation from the West draws on an Orientalist tradition that is also reproduced in Western approaches towards refugees. A case in point is the UK decision in September 2015 to take 20,000 Syrian refugees over a period of five years, yes, 20,000 over five years. Just The numbers are just staggering in so many ways. Directly from camps in Syria's neighbouring countries and that the refugees would be selected on the basis of need, disabled children, women who've been raped and men who have suffered torture. Here we can see the effects of the third good-bad narrative, good refugee, bad refugee. Good refugees are women, children and male victims of violence who patiently wait in refugee camps to be rescued by Western saviours. Bad refugees are those who exercise agency by engaging in proactive livelihood and survival strategies such as crossing sub-Saharan Africa or the Mediterranean in order to seek refuge in Europe. Bad refugees challenge the script that refugees are victims thus becoming a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean, as UK Prime Minister David Cameron said in 2015. Or they become queue jumpers and bogus asylum seekers who are jeopardising the protection claims made by real, i.e. good, refugees. The good Muslim, bad Muslim distinction is deeply intertwined with the good refugee, bad refugee narrative because, as Jose Casanova has pointed out, particularly in the case of Europe, Immigration and Islam are almost synonymous. The overwhelming majority of immigrants in most European countries are Muslims and the overwhelming majority of Western European Muslims are immigrants. 
This entails a superimposition of different dimensions of otherness that exacerbates issues of boundaries, accommodation and incorporation. The immigrant, the religious, the racial and the socioeconomic disprivileged other all tend to coincide. Um, that's a quote from Casanova. Considered in their overlapping dimension, the good religion, bad religion, good Muslim, bad Muslim, and good refugee, bad refugee divides contribute to explaining in Europe, North America, and Australia the growing importance of religious identity in the politics of migration and refugees and the hierarchization of refugees according to religious racial attributes. At the top of the hierarchy are Christian refugees, ideally victims of religious or Muslim persecution. This is evidenced in statements from politicians in Eastern Europe, the US and in Australia that only Christian refugees should be accepted. Those of you who may remember, former presidential candidate Ted Cruz said that Christian refugees should be accepted because unlike Muslim refugees, there was no real threat of Christians carrying out terrorist attacks, completely ignoring violence carried out by Christians and atheists alike against the, the Muslim pop population in the United States. Next in the hierarchy are Muslim refugees who wait patiently in camps for Western salvation, and the woman and child or child refugee who symbolise the quintessence of vulnerability. At the bottom of this hierarchy are the bad refugees, mostly represented by those who escape the victim script by taking matters into their own hands, venturing to the north across dangerous and illegal routes. This hierarchy is essential to understand Western policy responses to the crisis, such as the suspension of search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean, taking refugees directly from Syrian camps, and the EU-Turkey deal. The official explanation of these initiatives is that they are designed to reduce unintended pull factors that encourage more migrants to attempt the dangerous sea crossing and thereby leading to more tragic and unnecessary deaths. This explanation is tenuous to say the least. Refugees are fleeing for their lives anyway. Introducing harsh measures to reduce irregular migration whilst not at the same time opening up more legal pathways for greater numbers to be resettled does little to actually prevent people dying. The EU-Turkey deal has succeeded in closing down the shortest and safest sea voyage into Europe from Turkey to Greece, but has meant that migrants are now focused on the central crossing from Libya to Italy, which is longer and far more dangerous. Already this year, as of, eight, as of last Friday, between 4,621 and 4,646 migrants have died in the Mediterranean, which is nearly 1,000 more lives lost than in the whole of 2015, which was 3,777. In other words, it has not stopped people trying to come to Europe, merely made their journey options more life-threatening. As William Maley highlights, such policies are not about saving lives or preventing unnecessary deaths. Their real message is a simple one. Go and die somewhere else. What is forgotten in these dominant narratives around the refugee crisis is that, to put it rather simplistically, refugees are people. Commentaries that overly emphasise religious identity or spend too much time and energy considering whether someone is a genuine refugee or an economic migrant when the distinction on the ground is largely meaningless lose sight of the complexities that make up the human beings who are currently displaced. They are not just a Muslim or a refugee. They are parents, children, brothers and sisters, doctors, lawyers, teachers, engineers, citizens, activists and friends. In other words, their identities are complex and cannot be reduced to simplified categories of Muslim or refugee. 
It is here that I think the, con the most important contribution can be made to shifting current thinking and policy approaches to the mass displacement of people in our time. It is important to remember that when your life is threatened, your primary concern is your survival, not necessarily your religion or whether you are a migrant or a refugee. We as scholars and public intellectuals must continue to stress the diverse nature of Islam, delink Muslim refugee and terrorist in broader public consciousness and remind people of the humanity of those who are currently displaced. And we must push our politicians, policymakers and media to do the same. We must contribute to the creation of safe spaces for difficult conversations and encounters with others. And most crucially, we must ensure that the advice and experiences of refugees themselves is a central component of these public conversations. Shifting focus from religious identity to emphasising solidarity with fellow human beings whose survival is at stake would be a significant step in shifting dominant discourses and attitudes to the crisis, generating greater space for alternative political and societal responses. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to break this. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. So I'm grateful to Professor Emma Tomlin and the members of the Public Understanding of Religion Committee for the invitation to join this panel. I am an assistant professor of moral theology at Abbott School of Theology here in San Antonio, and I'm very grateful for them for including a, a local voice in this conversation. So as to my research, I will organize my initial remarks to share just three points its conclusions, its purpose, and some concerns. So first, conclusions that I've drawn from my research. Since 2014, my research critically engages the externalization of border enforcement through the perspective of Catholic human rights theory. I opened this line of research in response to, the, to that summer's refugee increase at the Texas-Mexico border. The detention of mothers and their children in two large detention centers that lie an hour and a half from here, and the deaths of immigrants and refugees along the U.S.-Mexico border and the Mediterranean Sea. Over the last two decades, the governments of the United States and the European Union have expanded their efforts to externalize their borders. Most recently, their focus has turned to stopping Central American and Syrian immigrants and refugees at the Mexican and Turkish borders. François Crepeau, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants, offers a succinct definition in light of the European context. Quote, the externalization of border control involves shifting the responsibility of preventing irregular migration into Europe to countries of departure or transit, close quote. Likewise, in, North in the North American context, the United States is shifting responsibility to Central American countries, and more importantly, to Mexico. In my most recent work, I analyzed the externalization of border enforcement in light of David Hollenbach's interpretation of Catholic human rights theory. In it, I conclude the following. The mechanisms that the governments of the United States and the European Union are using to externalize their borders to Mexico and Turkey, and this includes three, capacity building, in source and transit countries, so these countries may have the resources to enforce their borders in lights of the North's security concerns and Australia. 
to readmission agreements so that detained immigrants and refugees may be deported more quickly to, quote, a safe third country, including Turkey and, and Mexico, even if the citizens are not from those countries. And third, mobility partnerships, which promise transit countries greater access to work visas to the U.S. and to the EU in exchange for cooperation with their externalization policies. So these policies threaten the human dignity of immigrants and refugees. These mechanisms do so by weakening not just the instrumental human rights of immigrants and refugees to cross instrumental borders, international borders. They do so to place an essential social right, that of residents, beyond reach. Now to clarify, instrumental human rights are conditions that must be present in our institutions, including our immigration systems. While social human rights are conditions that must be present in our societies for the prevention, I'm sorry, for the preservation of all human rights, including a human right to migrate, to emigrate and to immigrate and to support oneself and one's family. The externalization of border enforcement policies diminishes the domestic common good of all countries involved and reduces global solidarity. Our government's actions are threatening the very lives of men and women who, like all of us, are sacred and precious in the eyes of God. So second point, the purpose of my research. I worked for six years before going to graduate school at Notre Dame. In that time, I exposed myself to the ways in which the Catholic hierarchy, the Mexican government, and the nonprofit sector address the pastoral, political, and socioeconomic needs of undocumented immigrants, the communities they transit through, and those communities where they settle. Those experiences taught me a valuable insight. Many people I worked with, including allies, were very comfortable turning to political, economic, and or social perspectives to inform themselves on immigration and refugee issues. But most were not as comfortable turning to faith-informed perspectives. Quite a few felt, felt ill-equipped, so they shied away from these. The ones who were most open to faith-informed perspectives to reflect on the meaning and implications of immigration, and this Grudy's work points to this, were actually the immigrants and refugees that I met, and in some cases ultimately befriended, not the communities where they moved through, and definitely not many of the policymakers or the decision makers. The research that I shared with you broadly compares policies that I grant may be of interest to a limited cross-section of the academy and policymakers. It is geared towards those who are interested in gaining some insight from a Catholic and a broader Christian perspective. Nevertheless, research like this helps me further a broader purpose, which is to provide Christians in general, and Catholics in particular, including advanced students, policymakers, community organizers, and church leaders, with language to explore faith-informed perspectives on immigration and refugee issues so they may generate their own perspectives. Research like this also provides me with resources to write in the popular press and increasingly online for a broader audience that is looking for the words they need to say what they know in their hearts to be the right stance on immigration and refugees on a host of issues. That's all that a lot of folks are looking for, the right words. So this takes me to the third, to my third and final point, two concerns. On policy, immigration between border enforcement, I'm sorry, the immigration debate in the United States between border enforcement, 
on the one side, and integral immigration reform on the other side, which involves our visa, visa system, the legalization of undocumented immigrants, and so on, this debate seems to have been settled, I think, in favor of border enforcement first, in light of the elections. It looks to me that like the Republican agenda has prevailed, and this is going to have enormous consequences in our faith communities. So I, I'm, I'm still seeing how that plays out. Second concern on faith. So my church, I am Roman Catholic, much like our country is divided. This election, and not just its results, has been difficult to bear because it suggests how deeply a disconnect runs between U.S. Hispanic Catholics and the white Catholic population in the United States, more so in terms of the effects and implications that U.S. immigration policy is having in our, in our lives. Now, the analyses are still coming out, so I want to be open to new data as it becomes available. It seems, broadly speaking, though, that 60% of white Catholic voters in the United States supported Mr. Trump, while 67% of Hispanic Catholic voters supported Mrs. Clinton. I'm sorry, Secretary Clinton. The vitriol was hurtful for many across our country's Hispanic communities because it reflected unchristian attitudes and unchristian worldviews in which might, make right, might makes, makes right. And it also reflects fears of immigrants and minorities that still sell. But what is of greater concern to me at this point as a moral theologian is the way in which the narrative that pro-life issues are limited to the time that runs from conception to birth appears to have taken hold among some Catholic voters. This may be an example, perhaps, of limits of faith-informed perspectives. Our faith communities can, unfortunately, be hijacked by ulterior partisan motives, ultimately hurting our ability to be a sign and symbol of God's love for humanity, especially the weakest among us, including undocumented immigrants. I will wait for some more data to understand the reason that some of my brothers and sisters in faith gave, gave for, their vote, for their vote, whichever way they voted. But this experience has been a difficult reminder of the difficult years ahead. Thank you. dimension between um, North America and um, Europe. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, so the first question I want to pose to um, each of the members of the panel is for them to say something about the role that scholars working on the public role of religion could play towards improving understandings about the fears and concerns of the post-state populations whilst at the same time addressing the real, tangible and immediate needs of, of people on the move, of people who are, are migrating. And perhaps if you have any examples or case studies from, from your own work or um, that you've come across in your research, it would, that would be really helpful um, as well. 
So who would like to go first? I think that's a very legitimate question and sort of how you deal with the, the, the concerns of a host country. And it's not an easy one because there are risks involved. And, and I think increasingly they are. The question is, 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 to what extent do we allow the politics of fear to govern us? I think there's a greater risk, uh, as been said by some, that um, we run a greater, greater risk of deporting our soul if we remain insensitive to the people who really are vulnerable. Uh, one time when I was on a delegation in Bulgaria, I was just dressing in plain clothes, and this person came up to me and said, I'm a Christian. It's just the first thing he said out of his mouth, I'm a Christian. So I, I, I looked at him. I was kind of rather... You know, shocked that it was just so direct and so immediate, and so, um, so, so I said, "Can you say more?" He says, "I'm a Christian," and so I said, "Why are you a Christian?" He says, "Well, they came to me." He was speaking about ISIS. He was from Syria. He said they came to me, and they asked him. Are, they, he said they asked me, "Are you a Christian?" He said, "Yes, I'm a Christian," and then they asked him, "Why are you a Christian?" He says, "I'm a Christian because I'm tired of war. I'm tired of the violence. And I'm tired of the hatred, and I want peace. And Christ gives me peace." That's why I'm a Christian. He came back later that evening, and they killed his mother, his father, his brother, and his sister. And then he looked at me, and he says, now I'm all alone in the world. So by some estimates, there are more people being persecuted today because of the religious faith than any other time in history. So it's really not just a question of what's happening to them and what's happening to us, if you will. It's also who we become uh, as a result of this, this conflict. And without dealing with issues of human insecurity outside of our borders, there really is no way we're going to have national security inside our borders. So I think these are really serious concerns that we need to happen. But what really concerns me most of all is if we let the politics of fear really govern us, um, you know, we become actually alien to ourselves. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to give a very pessimistic note here, especially on the European side. Um, you know, part of my work has been motivated in Europe about trying to uh, show the gap between the ongoing discourse on externalizing, demonizing Islam, using lots of the Ima images and imaginary that you can trace back even before modern times, and the reality of Muslims that has been documented through anthropological work, sociological work. And, and I have spent a lot of time, even before coming to the US, trying to talk to, to the French state, to the European institution. It doesn't change anything. Even the European, uh, European Union has a huge commission and from which I have benefited to do research. They have accumulated thousands of pages of data on immigrants, on groups. Nobody is using it. So <laughs> if you have a way to make this happen, I'd be happy. You know, it's not even, uh, this is something that nobody has addressed. A few people now in the European institution are aware of that because it, it's, I'm talking here millions of euro, uh, each year. And it has been going on for 15 years. So what are we doing here? And, and you know, you can publish, you can try to, to, to talk to people. It doesn't change the main parameters of the discourse on Islam. And I would say even that some of my colleagues, at least in the French space, that can have even produced this data, one day are part and parcel of the public debate, they don't use them. 
to say the least. They partake in the in the ongoing, you know, uh, anxiety. So uh, <laughs> this is my this is what I can say about you know the disconnect between the scholarship and the public debate on religion, at least on Islam. Yeah. I think one of the one of the most important services that we can offer as as uh, theologians or scholars of or or scholars of, of religion is precisely being open to engage in dialogue with with people in our churches and our center uh, temples and so on. Um, there is a big disconnect between a lot of our work and and the needs of of normal people, everyday people. For a lot of folks, they don't understand what we're doing. So I think we need to get do a better job of, of, of translating a lot of the amazing research that is happening in the academy and just helping people engage that and frankly, perhaps even give us feedback. Um, I've been surprised by, by how folks are, are very curious about everything that, that we're doing. Um, let me just give you a very quick example. Um, I was invited to a parish that is heavily Republican. Half of Catholics are, again, voted for, for Mr. Trump and, and heavily Republican. And when I was asked a question about what these detained immigrants are doing to, to us, meaning us here in, in Texas, I responded with a story of, of uh, a mom that I met at, at this detention center south of here. Um, and in this, this experience, we were basically you know, doing just, just uh, you know, reading of scripture and I asked the mothers to to give me their, you know, how do you read this? What, how does God speak to you here? And one of them said, and this is, mind you, somebody with a, an elementary level school education, you know, just broken with life so far. And she tells me, you know, Victor, the Bible and everybody in the church out there keeps talking about the fact that, that you should welcome immigrants, widows, and orphans and what a lot of those folks out there don't understand is that some of the some of us in here are immigrants and widows and orphans we have lost our, our husbands we have lost our children and so on and you hear similar stories in the men's detention centers so some of that i think is is just making people aware of these real like you said they're they're people too complex and complicated like all of us A couple of months ago, um, as you probably don't know this, there was a federal election in Australia back in July. Um, and, and the politics of the election in Australia reflected very strongly the politics that we've seen in the UK and in, in the US recently. And um, just just after the election, um, the, the chief editor of, of The Guardian Australia, Catherine Murphy, wrote an editorial where she talked about the failure of journalism to tell people's stories. She she saw this return to kind of, um, yeah, this, this national populist. Um, she wasn't condoning it, but she was saying, we haven't done our job well enough. We haven't engaged with these people. We haven't told their stories adequately enough. We haven't taken them seriously. And I read it and I, I felt to an extent that, that sometimes as scholars we run the risk of doing the same thing. We 
sit in the very luxurious position of being paid to think and to reflect and to inform ourselves. And sometimes, and I know I'm guilty of this, I'm very quick to judge people who don't have the same time to think and reflect and inform themselves for their opinions and views. And and what, what Murphy said in the piece, I'm, I'm going to quote what she said because she says, this doesn't mean whitewashing or excusing statements that are intolerant, bigoted or discriminatory. It means looking people in the eye, comprehending them and acknowledging their fears for the future, which are entirely reasonable and rational. Mm-hmm. This isn't about condoning fears about people, though. This is about fears about money, about security, about well-being, about the future. And I think part of our job is to actually take the fears that people are expressing about immigration and about Muslims and re-articulate those in a different different way because a lot of those fears cut across different groups. People, we're all people, as we've been saying. We all have similar fears, similar hopes, similar aspirations, and it's our job to try and interpret that and communicate it more clearly and try and put these discussions into more constructive terms. And some, some kind of very practical ways that we can do that, I'm just going to use some quick examples from our centre. We have a blog. So whenever something like this happens, we write a short piece on it, we translate our scholarship into it and we put it out there. Um, and I know a lot of other institutions do the same thing. Um, we we engage with policymakers. We have found a handful of policymakers who have nuanced, subtle views around religion in public life and we hang on to them and we support them and we just say, what do you need from us and we'll give it to you, where do you need us, we'll come to the meetings, that sort of thing. Um, And then the other thing that we're in the process of doing is organising a public festival. Now, a lot of the general public that that we talk about, people who who vote for these kinds of policies that that are quite exclusionary, um, they don't they don't read academic blogs. They don't they 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 read newspapers that we don't read. They don't read. They're not going to read our papers and our books, but they might come to a festival and listen to someone talk. They might come and listen to music or watch a performance. Or so that's what we're experimenting with: is to try and create a public space that's not just about religion and society because we don't just want the crazies to come along but we want to we want to get everybody there to have an open conversation and create spaces where we can have these kinds of difficult conversations that are troubling that make one another uncomfortable but ultimately build commitment and relationship across some of these divides thank you i agree with many of the points and uh, um, especially this point about re-articulating uh, recognizing um, in empathetic way, uh, concerns and fears and so forth, but also uh, and um, cultivating resources for rearticulating um, those demands um, in constructive and inclusive ways. Um, uh, one um, point that really came to um, to my mind as um, especially when Aaron talked about uh, immigrants, refugees are human too, I had in mind. <laughs> And our rent um, saying, well, it's not enough to just be humans. Uh, you actually need a passport yeah. and a working passport uh, that brings together the, the question about citizenship and nationalism and, um, and about the question, um, um, just two other dimensions that were not mentioned. Um, I think that as, um, as uh, educators and especially scholars, um, of religion, first of all, I really do hope that the AAR leadership will put put forward a very strong and explicit statement 
um, about the, the particular climate um, that seems to be in our, in our future uh, in the United States and beyond. Um, the populism and the um, um, exclusionary language and the Islamophobia um, especially. Um, uh, as educators, I think that our, um, we have a very important role uh, in the classroom. Uh, we have a very important role in, 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 um, as scholars of religion um, in really um, cultivating religious literacy um, and, 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 and recognizing religious traditions in their complexities and historicities um, and, um, and challenges and challenge misconceptions um, and, uh, um, um, and, and constantly, constantly on the public and in the classroom level. Uh, when we teach about religion, uh, especially uh, thinking about the, the good, bad religion narrative and the uh, synonymizing um, immig immigration and the condition of being refugee right now with, uh, with Islam, um, we have a duty to um, uh, to always contextualize and um, historicize uh, the very constructions of uh, the Orientalist constructions of, um, of of Islam that then facilitates culturalist explanations that really get us off the hook from uh, thinking about our complicity. Why these people are here, uh, trying knocking on the door <laughs> desperately. Um, uh, so, um, uh, uh, so so really, it's our um, I think job to. Um, um, uh, to um, yeah, to communicate it, uh, communicate it uh, very broadly um, uh, wherever we are. We are, and then uh, just to really um, exemplify some of the issues that I also mentioned in my um, my remarks earlier, um, I think it's very important to not lose sight of the intersection of all those sites of um, uh, discrimination, injustice. Uh, but also uh, uh, sites of co-resistance and, 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 and spaces of kind of reimagining uh, the, the public and, and, um, and, and plurality. And I do have specific examples in mind, um, especially in the space of Palestine, of global Palestine solidarity, uh, solidarity work where, um, where one can, um, can identify um, uh, uh, when there is a very clear understanding of the intersectionality and the interlock interlocking sites of um, of struggles. So we have, um, you know, Black Lives Matter came with a, uh, a platform that uh, expressed very, um, uh, uh, very explicitly uh, the intersection of um, of the struggle against um, uh, institutional and cultural and um, other forms of, of racist, racism in the United States and the, uh, the struggle of Palestinians. Uh, we also have expressions of solidarity uh, by uh, Latinx community in actually um, Arizona, especially uh, uh, recognizing or and, and drawing on one another's struggle. Uh, in so, so when you go and, and you demonstrate against uh, the wall, um, the, uh, the Trump wall, or uh, which is in in, in various respects, in continuation with um, uh, with already existing uh, policies of uh, deportation, um, they, um, uh, the people who are active in that, that space also feel that they um, protest Israeli occupation. Not these are not the, the str struggles are not the same, but there is an understanding of the intersection and the, the value of the intersectional lens in both analyzing and also as sites of resistance. I, I just wanted to add, add one quick thing. Um, 
it's a fear that was expressed by a colleague of mine and, and I wanted to, to just share it with people. But we've been in the process of redesigning one of our master programs on religion, conflict and globalisation and um, our the powers that be wanted us to focus it much more on issues around terrorism and security and conflict. And and one of my colleagues was, was really, really reluctant for us to do this. She said, I don't want to feed into this association between Islam and violence and religion and terrorism and conflict. And and I, I was talking with um, someone that I know who works for the European Network Against Racism and I mentioned this to him and he said, the horse has bolted. That discourse is out there, and if we if if we don't if you don't engage with it and you don't challenge it, no one else is going to. And also, what what Jocelyn was saying as well. People in I'm an international relations scholar by background. People in IR they're not talking about this. They're not giving the nuanced views. If religious studies scholars don't do it, nobody will. So we need to do it. Going to quickly ask um, one final question and then um, pass it over to the audience. Um, what I'm interested in finding out about is whether you've, you've observed any similarities or differences between the ways in which faith actors have responded to concerns over immigration in North America and um, Europe. So, for instance, is faith being mobilised in debates about immigration in different ways in the two settings, two regions? I would say that there is a big difference in the mobilization of faith-based groups across European and American society. It's almost, I would say, a given that you would see this kind of mobilization in different American localities. I'm not talking about national level here, but really localities, and, and everybody may have tons of examples of that. Having uh, observed the same kind of situation in Europe, most of the time you, uh, immigrants in Europe have to face um, state institution or non-profit that would clearly, again, it goes back to what I was saying about the necessity to efface or, or not mention any kind of religious identification in social action, and this typically of, of European political culture. It doesn't mean that these groups do not exist. They do exist, but they are not as recognized, and they are not as involved in the pipeline of decisions, especially locally, that the one I have seen in the US. You know, uh, So the Tocqueville observation still holds. <laughs> when Tocqueville came here, it was marveling on the you you know the, the the religious bond being also a civic bond what, what we do not evaluate when we are here on this side of the atlantic is how much this bond has been eroded in in the european case and the one who show an, an, uh, an energy around these bond are immigrants. We always focus on Muslim immigrants. Actually, there are lots of surveys that show that immigrants from other religious backgrounds are as religious and as active as Muslims. But again, we are not even seeing them. And they are the one who will look around the church or the mosque or the temple to do, to do social work and, and help the population around. So, um, 
so the perspective here is different, not because of the goodwill of people, but because the context of legitimacy and recognition of this kind of work is not the same. Uh, I'd say there are common ground, there are similarities and there are differences. I think one similarity uh, certainly uh, is not only transnational, but it's also transhistorical. If you look at the patterns of exclusion of anti-immigration rhetoric, it certainly in the United States is something that goes back generations. I mean, I'm at a school at the Fighting Irish, was really founded for, uh, you know, kind of trying to create opportunities for immigrants that were excluded from other places of learning. But what was the Irish then later became the Italians, the Germans, the Lithuanians, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Filipinos. Then it became the Mexicans. Now it's the Muslims. So um, so this really kind of runs deep. Uh, but what is different in Europe from the United States is Europe is primarily dealing with economic migrants, although that's slightly changing now with the cartels and folks coming across the Mexican border that are threatened down in Central America. Um, whereas, um, but if you look at the cartels and ISIS, there's, there's a comparison. There really is a parallel. Uh, but while the United States is dealing with economic migrants, Europe is primarily dealing with refugees. And while many of the economic migrants come to the United States come from a Christian background, you know, either culturally or, or other, uh, that in the United States, we obviously have, there's a multi-religious issue going on. So it's, it's the religious issue complicates, I think, the resettlement, the cultural integration. And you also have in Europe places that traditionally, um, would have been defined by, you know, a Catholic church in the square, but now there's negative population growth going on in Europe. And when folks have big Muslim families and they're kind of now putting up mosques and, you know, praying, um, you know, uh, prayer at, the, you know, six in the morning and others, I mean, that kind of triggers a lot of cultural issues. So I would say in many ways, there's common ground across the world, whether you go to Australia, whether you go to Africa, whether you go to Europe, whether you're in the United States, the anti-immigrant rhetoric, the, the identities which create exclusions. This simply is happening everywhere. But um, the last thing that is slightly different is the way so organized religion is responding. I think the Bishops' Conference of the United States has actually been very uh, outspoken in terms of denouncing the anti-immigrant rhetoric. I don't see in Europe um, as many uh, organized responses from, say, you know, Bishops' Conference and others that are combating that exclusionary rhetoric. I think the, the, uh, a lot of faith leaders here in the U.S. seem to be trying to respond to the whole issue of, of, uh, of the rule of law and the fact that a lot of evangelicals really focus on, on uh, rule of law and including a lot of conservative, conservative Catholics, whereas in Europe they seem to be more concerned about cultural differences with, with, uh, with practitioners of Islam. In terms of responses beyond the, the leadership of the Catholic community, I think Catholics and, and many Protestants here in the United States seem to, there seems to be a lot of conversations about bringing back sanctuary. So the sanctuary movement from the 1980s, uh, talking conversations about uh, having churches and universities you know, and so on and so forth provide sanctuary for, for usually for, for religious reasons um, or grounded in, in religious beliefs. And I haven't seen as much, or I'm not aware of, of uh, Europe, Catholics in Europe using this language as much as here. I may be incorrect, though. Just, just quickly, one, one um, similarity that I've observed is the flexibility in the way that the religious or secular identity of Europe 
or North America is emphasised depending on which immigrants they're, they're particularly concerned about. Um, and it was when, when Jocelyn was speaking and she was talking about the, the European Court of Human Rights I, and their decisions are going more and more down the, the French line, I think that's, that's true, but I think it also depends on which religion they're dealing with. And if you think about the outcome of the Laozi case, that was very much about maintaining the presence of a religious symbol in the public sphere. But the religious symbol was recast as a cultural symbol rather than religious. And so there's this reclassification of Christianity going on. In, in Laurie Beeman has written on this in, in the Canadian context as well, but Christianity is becoming a, historic, a part of cultural heritage and that becomes part of the debates around immigration, preserving our, cult, our Christian cultural heritage um, against the influence of Islam in a lot of these contexts. Um, there's also a lot of grassroots mobilisation going on in Europe amongst um, religious communities, a lot of, lot of citizen initiatives that are being driven by Christian community, not even necessarily communities, just individual Christians who op they openly identify as being influenced by their faith to, to um, set this movement up. And I think that there's not hasn't been enough research done on on those movements and that's something that we can do more work on yeah I just want to add um, that beyond the level that we de we do need to um, um, to think of the various levels of, of responses the leadership but also um, uh, on the grassroots various um, uh, churches and other um, um, institutions affiliated with uh, religious communities um, expressed um, interest and desire to, to, to uh, facilitate uh, resettlement and help um, on all those um, levels that are necessary for um, vulnerable communities, uh, including um, um, refugees and, uh, and, and immigrants. And um, so, so, uh, so the question is how to... Um, um, how to challenge the uh, kind of the discourse, the the ideology, the the, the, the on the level of, of leadership and 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 policy, um, and how to um, uh, to think of of ways to kind of overcome uh, in in the in the context of the United States, um, what Victor expressed with um, what sounded like um, kind of a real pain, um, the uh, the fact that. One issue that is associated with with people's Christian identity, and please excuse the word, trumps other issues that also should be uh, very profoundly um, associated with people's um, um, kind of religious orientation. So, um, but but the, but the encouraging fact is that on the ground, it 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 exists. The question is why this other argument has so, so much traction and currency. And it didn't come out of nowhere. So. All right, thank you, um, everyone. So I now want to open it up to the audience um, and you know, perhaps take a couple of questions at a time. So we've, we've only got about 15 minutes left, actually. We have less time than I anticipated. Um, so has anyone got any questions for, for the panellists? Mara?
Um, I just very, um, yeah, I'm completely in agreement with you. When I uh, brought Nancy Fraser's work on how, um, you know, her, um, her critique of the liberal discourse of multiculturalism, not more like, you know, um, recogni the question of recognition, but recognition that then um, um, enables us to overlook, well, power, overlook uh, redistributive questions. Uh, but, but, the, the, but the issue is not to stop recognizing. Um, and also um, look at identities as negotiated. Uh, so, so one of the main um, kind of pivots of her critique is how within the liberal discourse of multiculturalism, you still start, your starting point is with a particular understanding of who is the normative citizen, and it's a he, and he is white. And then you and then you expand it to include women, white women, and then you expand. So, but, but the point of departure is that particular normativity. So I think it resonates with your point. And yes, indigenous populations absolutely uh, intersect with as another uh, sites of co-sufferers and co-resistance, as we see now, you know, tragically. Yeah. Just a quick example from the Australian context um, in asylum politics and resistance. One of the the catchphrases has become. Um, the, the way in which Indigenous Australians are involved in this, the first boat people can't tell the second boat people to go away. And it's 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 become really quite powerful. So, yeah, the Indigenous Australians are really active and, and the asylum resist politics resistance community is really engaged. Like, they're just, they're, 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 they're a central part of it. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. I don't know if you have read it. There is a piece of Toni Morrison in the New Yorker about the whiteness and after the election. And she presents the results of the election as a resistance or reaction of the whiteness uh, in, in the US. And, and, and for her, it's presented as a fear. You know, it's, it, the articulation of the discourse is about pride and um, and being strong and she read it as the anxiety of being marginalized actually and defeated and and it's an interesting piece on the whiteness and how you can read uh, trans victory this way yeah It's interesting to look at the work of cartoonists who show the uh, or the Native Americans of Plymouth Rock seeing the pilgrims coming over, and then 
kind of saying maybe we should build a wall to keep out these immigrants or um, or even the kind of a group of Native Americans huddling together and saying, you know, we need to deport all these immigrants, you know, these shadowy figures. And they say, and he looks at me, there's all 300 million of them. So, um, so it's interesting to look at the long story of that and really ask the question, you know, who, who really defines reality? But, um, but one, one element, too, to just add to this, one of the things I've been doing lately is studying the hate mail um, given to religious organizations or leaders of religious organizations that justifies the religious rationale for exclusion or hatred of immigrants. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's important to interject here that religion is part of the problem. Um, or at least the way we use or misappropriate religion is really uh, part of the problem. So I think we have to continue to look at, and maybe this is part of the role of scholars of religion, theologians, is to really critically examine our the way we use religion, especially to justify and find these kind of ruptures in human communion. I, I think that in recent months we had a strong voice from many people at centers for for credit. You understand it's correct.
that are typified by our models of the family. One model is the strict father, and the other model is the nurturing parent. And uh, the strict father uh, is the, uh, the meaning, so to, so to speak, for um, conserve, not only conservative politics, but conservative religion. And the nurturing parent is the model really for uh, liberal progressive politics and, and liberal religion. And uh, you, you need to be fostering the one that we think most promotes human values. But on the other side, yes, why would Catholic churches tell people to, to hate the Trump? Or why would evangelical leaders like uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. Endorse Trump and have him speaking at Liberty University. Well, um, all, it, it wasn't only abortion, but, but it was a, a whole way of, of looking at life and uh, how do we model what should be uh, the reality of our lives and of our society. And uh, I, I think these these prophets of the change uh, operate just in every level. Um, I mean to um, um, I mean it's 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 really important analytically um, to really um, um, to, uh, to gain an understanding of how the construction of certain identities um, and how um, how they are playing out today so this is what you know what what historicizing does you know the kind of that we need to do in the classroom but also beyond the classroom um, understand um, Orientalism and how it authorized the colonial project and how it continues to kind of um, uh, to play out um, uh, in you know the phenomena of Islamophobia that really is threaded uh, through um, some dimensions of the discussion of immigration, uh, especially in um, uh, Aaron's presentation. So uh, definitely um, uh, uh, engaging with the colonial, the postcolonial, and neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, 
uh, is, is absolutely uh, crucial analytically, but also in terms of um, resistance, core resistance and activism. Thank you, Victor. Um, on November the 5th, Francis gave, a, gave an address to the participants of the Third World Meeting of Popular Movements. And he reminded us of, of las tres T's, the three T's, tierra, techo y trabajo. So land, roof, and work. <laughs> and I think this is a very pedagogical, simple, perhaps, you know, way of, of saying this, but it, it's a good reminder that we are all looking for tierra, techo, y trabajo, even undocumented immigrants. And it, you know, there is a desire to be critical in engaging the system um, in terms of its, its, well, the tendency of the system to try and do away with these, with tierra, techo, y trabajo. Um, the question will be for me in, in the coming years whether, whether my own leaders in the Catholic Church are willing, willing and able to broaden, especially intellectually, to broaden their understanding of, of life and the consistent ethic of life uh, towards this tierra, techo y trabajo. I hope they can because otherwise our prophetic function in the church, it's just going to fail. And that, that shouldn't be the case, I hope. I would like to build on that because I think that part of the elephant in the room during the whole el, el presidential election was the class issue. I mean, I am, I am appalled by the fact that social inequality are never addressed. All the political and public discourse is based on principle. You know, and George Orwell said a long time ago, but not, some are more equal than others. This is something that the political leaders in this country and the public figure do not address. We think in a sort of very abstract way, and the more, you know, higher you are in the ranking, the easier it is to think and look down that we are all coming together around the public space with the same assets. Even our political philosophy is based on that. John Rawls, you know, we all agree to disagree and everything goes well, and the one who don't, they are the, you know, talking about the good and the bad, they are the bad people. And unfortunately, they are also the one that sometimes cannot even make it to the table. So as, so it's easy for people like Trump to exploit that, but it's our own responsibility also to move away from all this principal debate, you know, and, and, and that polarize. The polarization is not only on the Trump side, it is also on the other side as well. And, and it's something that um, once we have said we, we are for this and that and that and inclusivity, we think we have done our job. I don't think we do. And that's why, indeed, work matters, roof matters, and bread matters. You know, it's, it's <laughs> sounds obvious, but it is not if we just look at, you know, the principle and defending principles. And that's why religious groups sometimes have more efficiency, because, as you said, the Catholic Church, the, the, the local community, that's what they have to deal with every day. for their really thoughtful presentations and engagement with the questions you know on, on this incredibly important 
topic. I don't want it to end, actually, and I hope we can somehow continue um, this con conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.